I'm Chris Reback. This is Working Capital Conversations. Today's conversation is brought to you by StartApp. StartApp is an insights-driven mobile technology company. StartApp enables its partners to deliver the world's most fulfilling mobile experiences for their users. They do this by creating innovative ways of exploring mobile users' intents and behaviors, what they want to do and how they go about doing it. By being smarter about responding to these factors, StartApp helps partners optimize and better execute their strategies. Want to learn more? Check them out at startapp.com. Now to our conversation. How important, how big and growing is the app economy? It's not just the economic value estimated at nearly $150 billion a year. The app economy has added some 110,000 software jobs to the U.S. workforce, with 83% of those located outside Silicon Valley. But how will this growth continue? How can the app economy extend beyond social media and games? How will it balance reliance on big and personal data with increasing calls to protect individual privacy? And what about the promise of artificial intelligence and the peril of cybersecurity? Morgan Reed is president of ACT The App Association, which represents more than 5,000 app companies and information technology firms in the mobile economy. The organization advocates for an environment that inspires and rewards innovation while providing resources to help its members leverage their intellectual assets to raise capital, create jobs, and continue innovating. As you'll hear in this conversation, Morgan and the App Association sit at the intersection of just about everything interesting that's happening in the tech and business world today. Mobile, cloud, data, and as Morgan points out, given new technologies like AI and the Internet of Things, it's all going to speed up exponentially from here. Morgan was incredibly thoughtful about the promise of the app economy, as well as some of the pitfalls key players will need to avoid. Here's my conversation. Morgan, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time. A great pleasure, Chris. So let's start at the very top. You are president of uh, ACT, the App Association. What is that? Well, it's a trade association that represents the more than 5,000 companies out there that are doing all the amazing mobile apps that uh, our customers use across the world. Uh, Our members do the apps that uh, run behind the business and the enterprise all the way up to some of the games that uh, many of your listeners love to play when they're uh, not doing their work. Um, But in general, it's a trade association of software developers. One of the things that we found most fascinating about the move to apps is how many of these people had a career or started their work um, and behind the scenes in the enterprise layer of software. And so now, uh, really, it's just um, changing the perspective. Are you writing for an internal product or are you writing for a consumer? And now we have apps. And and you just hit on, you know, the key, uh, what I think is, and obviously you'll correct me if I have it wrong, but what I think is just a key driver of the growth of apps. Um, But also I'm imagining one of the challenges for you, and so maybe you can talk about both of them. And what I'm really getting at is this is an industry, an economy, a a series of businesses where an individual can come out of an enterprise and go off and, you know, start partnering with others, et cetera, but really start a business. And so one is that accurate? Is that why you know how and why you would characterize the growth? And then two, from a, as a trade association, how, how do you deal with that? Because I'm assuming that the needs of you know the single person or the small team in Seattle or Florida or wherever is very different than the needs of the Verizons of the world. 
<laughs> the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few? Are we going to go with that? Well, yeah. in, in, <laughs> you'll, you'll tell what me. What we really are looking at. Yeah, no, what we're really looking at in, in an industry, well, first of all, um, Chris, you're completely right. The app ecosystem and the app economy is actually built off of small teams of developers. Um, the days of the 10,000-man programming shop, there are a few of those left, but a huge, huge part of the explosive economic growth out there is by smaller development teams seeing an idea, seizing on the opportunity, and putting a product into the market. And what we're really seeing, the height of growth, is actually kind of a return to where we all came from, and that is enterprises move to mobile. Um, businesses now are moving from a PC-centric world to one where your sales team needs to be able to do sales presentations on an iPad or a Surface, and the guy on the factory floor wants to report where the inventory control mechanisms are based on the phone or an iPad. The CEO wants to see on sales projection numbers from his tablet. All of that added up means there's an enormous um, pent-up demand for converting legacy systems into something that's more agile, that's cloud-based, and is presentable on a mobile screen. And that's meant um, an absolutely unbelievable jo growth in job numbers. Um, we've added more than 110,000 developer jobs in the in the, into the workforce in the last two years. And what's more amazing is we're sitting on nearly 500,000 unfilled jobs, 250,000 of which are in programming jobs. So the average salary is running about $102,000 a year right now for programmers. I know some of the shops that we work with that are offering signing bonuses of $25,000 or more for high school graduates with the right coding skills that they need to get out the door. So this pent-up demand for the move to mobile is enormous, and we think it's only the first wave to hit the beach. Um, with IoT right around the corner, we've made this conversion to mobile, what happens when that next wave of sensor data and information driving productivity and enterprise starts hitting our shores? And when that happens, we're going to see yet another growth wave, yet another opportunity wave, and really one that demands new and innovative products to get to the market quickly. Yeah, you, you really are at the intersection of everything that's happening. I mean, you, de you described it, the, that, that, you know, the places where mobile and cloud and needing the, to, you know, see things and, and interact with data on the devices, where all of that intersects, um, that, uh, you know, it sounds like that, that's where you're sitting and, um, there's just, there's so much going on there. Um, the, the, the stats that you just, uh, read off and they are incredible. And as well, I don't know if you hit this one, but, but, you know, I look, I read your, uh, most recent state of the app economy report. And, you know, in addition to the, you know, 110,000 plus software jobs, I think it's even gone up since then. You may have just said and the average salary yep. and the, that half a, half a, Billion? No, five hundred thousand. Half, half a million. million. Half a million jobs still unfilled. I mean, it's it's crazy. Plus, it's a as of the time of the the report. Maybe it's gone up since then as well. A hundred and forty three billion dollar business sector industry. The app economy. Absolutely, and and the predictions on it continue to grow. Brandy came out with some crazy numbers, and Gardner has as well, saying that the size of the market in the end is roughly eight trillion dollars. Uh, but, you know, at first we laugh and say, how is that possible? When you think about what the IoT revolution means and the fact that quite literally every American has access to a device, right now there are more 
smartphones that are currently paying bills, smartphones and tablets, than there are Americans. Roughly, active pops in the United States is about 100 and, I mean, 350 million, and there are about a 315 million people. So there are more active devices on the wireless network right now than there are people. And from a smartphone percentage, that number is insane. And when you consider that on average people are never more than three feet away from their mobile device, that includes in bed, in the bathroom, um, this is completely revolutionizing the way that we engage in many aspects of our lives. Some of that has raised some you know, social issues about how, how, do we, how do we live our lives when we're staring down at our screens. But I think from an opportunity and from a, a, a business case and from an economics case, um, I, you know, at first we scoffed at that $8 trillion number, but now we look around the room and say, maybe. Yeah, if my device gets more than your uh, described three feet away from me, I, I start to I start to have trouble catching my breath. Uh, my vision goes blurry. <laughs> so you know, yeah. you're you're <laughs> you're 100 right uh, on this jobs thing. And as well, another stat that was uh, in the report that really blew me away: 83 um, percent of the jobs outside of Silicon Valley um, of the U.S. jobs outside of Silicon Valley. Right. Um, you know that that goes against I think the uh, cliched thinking or what, you know, the, what, what we might think if we, you know, just look at it, well, all these jobs that, you know, okay, great, let's, let's help the Bay Area even more. No, I mean, your report shows it's, it's, you know, this is a nationwide thing. Yeah, we looked at the top 800 apps on both platforms, and it was really apparent quite quickly that um, if you peeled down the layer at all, that oftentimes the dev team that put that together wasn't necessarily um, in Silicon Valley at all. Now, of course, there are some big-name companies, the Facebooks and others, that, that are located there. I've heard of them. <laughs> yeah. You know, an interesting story that we see, um, I remember, this was years ago, but it's still appropriate, that when Condé Nast, the big publisher, uh, had their first app that came out, um, you'd think, oh, well, that, that, that app and all of the Condé Nast properties, well, that's New York, so it's a big New York company. But it turns out it was two of our member companies that put it together, one located in the southern part of Virginia and another in North Dakota. Mm. Um, so what you have with cloud computing and kind of always-on, always-high-speed Internet is development teams can bid on projects, can win bids, and can work collectively across borders, across state borders, to pull a product together. And so we're seeing um, a lot of these top apps, especially ones um, that are built uh, not necessarily a game, but when it's your banking app or one of those, you're seeing a lot of the dev teams behind those aren't located in the Valley at all and are oftentimes third-party contractors that are brought in to build the user experience, build the UX, or build some of the underlying um, middleware technology that makes it go bang. So, so why is President Trump talking about coal mining jobs? We 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 got to get him talking about the uh, app economy and the software jobs, don't we? Well, it's interesting that you mentioned that. In fact, there are currently uh, active um, active operations right now to retrain coal miners in West Virginia to do exactly that. In fact, uh, one of the ones that we that we've talked to and worked with a lot is a company called um, Project Hosts out of, um, I can never say the name, Conneville, um, Pennsylvania. And their entire purpose is to, um, is to do on-ramp training programs for, uh, for coal miners and others in that heartland of Pennsylvania where their jobs have been depleted. They provide a fully paid 90-day apprenticeship. Um, they do uh, testing and education on cloud and programming skills. Uh, their entire business model is based on 
look, there aren't enough programmers, so let's make some. And uh, you're seeing that uh, uh, all around the United States right now. There's a few shops like that in West Virginia, Pennsylvania, um, the southern part of Virginia proper. Uh, we see it in Kentucky. And I think the problem is, really, it's a mindset change. Um, when you think about it, and if you go back in my family a, a little bit, you see folks who are in mining and uh, steam pipe fitters and others. And so a large part of the problem is not that they're not, that they don't have the, the brains or the, the moxie or the work ethic. It's what was the structure behind them in high school and grade school to give them the skills that they need to take that chance. And right now, the United States is failing in a lot of ways to provide kids that kind of introduction to these concepts that you need in that K through 6, K through 12 realm. And so the coal miner, the, the person who worked at the coal mining company, the person who helped build uh, that part of America, they are absolutely capable of learning and understanding and growing in our field. The problem is, has anybody asked them and given them the tools that they need to say, yes, I can, and yes, I will? And that's where our education system is uh, not doing enough. And frankly, industry is stepping forward to do a lot of these training projects, like Project Host. Morgan, I could not agree with you strongly enough. That's exactly, you know, the, the the creating that type of opportunity, starting, as you point out, I mean, it's a really smart place to start at, at the education level. It also speaks to why um, ensuring that uh, we have high-speed Internet capability and, and reach, um, you know, not just in our urban centers, but, but, you know, really across this country, that's just, to me, central. Uh, to, to driving the type of change that you're talking about and, and, and creating the democracy of opportunity that something, you know, that, that an industry that you're talking about, it's cloud-based. You can be anywhere. You don't have to be in Silicon Valley. You don't have to be in New York. You know, it's, it's mobile. It, it's, a tie, it's an entire industry, and, and you stop me when I'm, you know, I can get off my soapbox. It's an entire industry that's built for the you-can-be-anywhere point of view. That's exactly right, Chris. And I think what's interesting is more than 24 million Americans right now have no access to high-speed broadband, yeah. and that's a huge problem in rural areas. Yeah. There's another 11 million that are, are uh, in, in more urban or suburban areas. But the fact that we have 24 million people um, in this country, roughly 10% of the population when you include some of the other areas, that don't have access to high-speed, it's not that they haven't bought it. They can't get it even if they did want it. And so we're working right now on some projects to utilize uh, what's called TV white spaces. Um, that's the gaps between existing channels. Um, for your listeners under a certain age, you, might, you may not know this, but uh, there are things that you stick on top of a television set called rabbit ears that allow you to get um, your VHF and UHF channels. And those signals go incredibly far. They penetrate walls. That's why you can watch TV in your house. And so there's a project right now around TV white spaces to look at how do we expand and provide broadband through the technology that used to provide us I Love Lucy into our homes. And I think that's where we're going to have to do it because, unfortunately, for a lot of rural America, the economics of pulling fiber and lighting up houses where there's a community of 45 people, it's just not – it's just not the money's not there to pull uh, to pull and light up fiber to dig trenches um, to put the kinds of structures in place that you need for high speed. So we're looking at the next wave, the 5G wave, to try to give 24 million Americans plus 
access to high-speed Internet. Well, that's a fascinating pro- – I'll, I'll have to learn more about that project. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. Also, in, in, you know, I could go on on this stuff. We, You know, the, the, the history and looking back at some of the things that happened in, in this country and, you know, the, the early 1900s and the 1930s as well around uh, extending telephone lines and, and bringing electricity to uh, – I mean, it's it's kind of like the same yeah, thing. Yeah, electrification project. Yeah, yeah exactly yep. right. I mean, I've got Lyndon Johnson going through my brain. Let, let me let me switch uh, topics. And, and one of the challenges, I think, you know, from my point of view, to all, all of the positives of technology and the positives that the apps bring us. And this is the whole question on on the benefits of data versus the you know what can be scary aspects of data and and the privacy questions. You know, on the one hand, and you're talking about it, it's only going to get more. You know, intrusive and extensive. I would think, as uh, the Internet of Things, as the IoT, um, you know, it comes more into play. Uh, on the one hand, we know it; it's the key to business growth. Data, you know, it's, it gives us targeting. It lets us know when we're out of uh, soap, and we push the button so that we can get it in our Amazon basket or any basket. It, it, it I mean, it's going to drive. It drives everything for advertising, customer experience. I'll give you an example that you haven't even thought of. Yeah. So um, for your listeners, if, uh, if you think about it, if you've ever been to Starbucks, you may not know this, but Starbucks has a partnership with AccuWeather. And they use uh, data algorithms that have been put together by AccuWeather to look at the predicted temperatures over, over some time around stores. You may say, why would Starbucks care about the weather? Well, it turns out it takes longer to make cold drinks than it does hot drinks at Starbucks. And they know by using data analytics when they're going to need to have a greater staff at the store so that when you get to your Starbucks, you don't have to stand in line so long. And so right now, Starbucks is actually using data from AccuWeather and machine learning to do a better job in predicting the staffing numbers in their stores across America. And so when you think about the obvious uses of big data, um, you've only begun to scratch the surface. We are seeing that kind of overlay. Um, The best example I can think of where the positives are, and, and we'll get to the, 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 the obvious things we need to discuss. Yeah. But here's the most obvious. Um, if you see a physician and you go to your doctor, and your doctor's a great doctor, and she's incredibly skilled and went to a fancy school and all that, in her entire life, in her entire life as a physician, she will see maybe 30,000 patients, maybe 40,000, but let's say 30,000. And she will see a person with your specific condition, your age, your gender, your genotype, all the other things that make you you, maybe she'll have seen 500 in her entire career that have the same symptoms and same conditions that you do. And she's going to make the decision on your treatment based on what she learned in school, some articles that she might have read for continuing education, and the less than 500 data points that she's going to have when you walk in and meet with her. And that's for a really great doctor. And the idea that we're not giving physicians the tools to say, hey, I'd like to know how this medication affects 10 million people who are that age, that genotype, that gender, have the similar diseases and comorbidities and situations. It's insane to me that we essentially practice 19th century medicine where we're hopeful we get the smart doctor who works hard and has seen a few cases just like me to make the right decision. And so when you think about the power of big data and the power of the cloud, to me, it's the power of helping physicians make the right decision so that we don't take the wrong medication and we get the treatment that's most effective for us. 
No doubt, no doubt. Now, now, talk to me about the negative side. Talk to me about the scary side. Talk to me. Talk to me about. I mean, because look, I, I love the benefits so, of this data, but I, I also, I, I'm of two minds myself. And you talk about. I mean, the point you're talking about medical data. It's hard to get more personal than that. And exactly. and so, so, what's your kind of personal point of view? What's what's your association's point of view? How do we how do we get all of the good without one ounce of bad? Well, I think a lot of it becomes what do we determine as bad. So one of the problems that we run into is um, surprise. The element of surprise is one of the biggest problems from a consumer perspective, meaning that if you say to them, I want to use your data for targeted behavioral advertising, right? That's the, the, the Google model. They might say in the abstract, oh, that sounds fine. But then they start seeing ads or get a phone call or some other uh, information that, that is very clearly based on something about them that they may not be comfortable sharing. And so they're surprised. They're like, how do you know this about me? And they don't connect the fact that they agreed to a terms of service that said, sure, you may use my data for targeted behavioral advertising. And they don't understand the ripple effects of how that data goes, who it goes to, how it may be used, how many people can see it, all of those elements. And I think that one of the things our industry has done just a rotten job at is really communicating to consumers um, about those implications and getting folks comfortable with it. Um, we've done a decent job of giving people opportunities to opt out, but oftentimes we make it hard to get to that and hard to see it. And moreover, it gets into another weird problem. Um, people like to say that they want to protect their information, but they also like stuff for free. And by free, I mean things that are based on advertising. And so the problem we run into is when you do uh, focus groups on this question and you say, how much are you willing to pay for not sharing your data? Uh, the, the dimes and pennies that people are willing to put on the table to have access to information paid for directly rather than advertising, it just doesn't add up. So I think part of the problem we've got on kind of that baseline um, consumer sensitivity to how their data is being used is a communications problem and an expectations problem. And I think that's one that the industry is solving over time but I'm not pleased with where we are. I think on the question of medical data and, and what we'd all think of as, as far more sensitive data, I think there's two common approaches that you're seeing. One of which is uh, using data in the aggregate or doing you know, what, what sometimes is referred to as de-identification, uh, meaning stripping enough away or adding enough noise, making it hard to determine that it's exactly you, but yet leave fundamentally important parts of the data there to be utilized um, when the time comes. Um, that's good, and you saw Apple announce, um, for example, Apple announced some changes on they were doing around uh, similar activities about obfuscating data and making even Apple unable to see it, and that has some yep. benefits. But in the long term, part of what we love about AI and machine learning is that it's going to take the data that we give it and come up with unexpected answers and unexpected uses. So I think, I think really it's going to come down to um, finding what's the point at which customers are comfortable with impact. And I think it breaks into some very obvious categories. We have, we have two elements in privacy that are, are very powerful. Um, things that have an economic impact, uh, you know, direct monetary harm. And the other is, is um, for lack of a better word, sometimes we talk about it in privacy circles as shame or embarrassment. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's a tendency for the industry and nerds like me and others to not really care about that, right? Oh, well, it doesn't really hurt anyone. It's just, they just feel bad. 
And I think that's a mistake that we make. And I think that um, finding ways to um, strip away key elements of the data that uh, reassembled could cause um, could cause people that level of uncomfortableness is um, is something that we've got to work on. But Chris, if we're honest, that's a moving target because I don't know if you've looked at your friends' Facebook feeds. You see things on Facebook feeds that uh, 10 years ago nobody would have said in public and certainly not on a broadcast platform of hundreds if not thousands of their closest, air quotes, friends. So I think we're, um, I think we're, we're on a moving target on how we handle the question about embarrassment. On the other, monetary harm, I think that one's very straightforward. I think the Federal Trade Commission, other, the Department of Justice and others need to be more aggressive on cracking down on misuse of data. And that includes when it's used by big multinational corporations that have either violated terms of service or have certainly broken with customer expectations. Um, things that affect your ability to get a mortgage, a loan, a job. Um, I think that, that that there are organs of the government that need to do a more aggressive job when it comes to that. That's very. I mean, that's a that's a very interesting and and in my view, open minded approach. I mean, you, there's a there's a role for regulation, I guess, in terms of protecting individuals and and obviously any industry i assume to a certain extent wants to have obviously as little regulation as possible and would like to be you know self-regulated and and would like to have everybody doing the right thing and etc um at the same time you know the the same customers are voting for uh you know our our politicians and our government and there's pressure on that side to create protections and so i guess it, do you kind of balance that is that one of your roles helping regulators and businesses understand both sides absolutely and i think like i said when there's a direct physical harm um think of the FDA, Food and Drug Administration. Yeah, yeah. When there's a direct harm, meaning that, you know, grandma can die because this mobile app didn't handle medical records correctly or or, or didn't uh, analyze it or didn't do the right thing with it or somebody loses their home or isn't able to get a job, I think there's a very clear role for uh, agencies of the government to be the cop on the beat and to say, no, this isn't acceptable. I think the place where self-regulation really enters into it is – those opportunities where the customer enters into it, at least appearances-wise, willingly, but down the road thinks to themselves, huh, what have I gotten myself into? And I think that's where we are on a lot of these privacy discussions right now. I think, I think uh, you say self-reg. I think what was most fascinating about the last three or four years on this is the difference in approach between you know, two of the biggest names in technology, and that was Apple and Google. Um, Google, obviously, 94% of its profits come from targeted behavioral advertising and aspects of advertising. And Apple makes money off of the sale of physical goods. And so it was interesting that, um, that Apple pretty clearly decided a business decision to forego money off of the advertising side of the world. And Tim Cook had very strong announcements about Apple's decision to not utilize their customers' technology in that way, to not share it. And to, frankly, even restrict my members' ability to have access to that data on the Apple platform. And so it's interesting to see how businesses themselves are approaching this question and say, you know, how do we serve our customers and uh, how do we stay in business? 
what you're describing has really become part of the Apple brand at this point, and it, it they've they have taken that uh, that stand that you uh, that you describe. Um, to to close out, Morgan, um, how do companies connect, or how should companies connect with you? I, I'm sure that every company that matters already is connected with you, but just in case there are um, you know folks in the app economy who you know think that they ought to be engaged, what, what should they do? Absolutely. Um, you can go to actonline.org, actonline.org, and uh, join us there. You can hit our membership button to join. If you've got questions, you can find me on Twitter at Morgan W. At Morgan w. Reed. And, of course, uh, you can find us on all the things, whether it's uh, Facebook or Instagram through Act Online and uh, all the little buttons at the bottom of the website. But we're always interested in hearing about the next great thing. Um, and we're looking forward to assisting our members and the ecosystem on bringing products to market that uh, we didn't know we need, but once we have them, we can't live without. Yeah, Morgan, I really appreciate your time. You are clearly, you know, in this industry, you are you're at the intersection of you know most of what's interesting that's happening in uh, in the business world and the the technology world. So uh, I appreciate your time and the conversation, and I would uh, really look forward to talking with you again. Absolutely, Chris. And this was great. Thank you very much. Thank you.